Hello and welcome to the Herb Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. We're something of a rarity in Middle East analysis. We have no sponsors and we carry our podcasts without advertising. If you'd like to support a truly independent voice, consider making a small donation. Details at ArabDigest.org. When you go to the website, check out how you can receive our reader-supported daily newsletter for two months for free. That's right, two months for free. My guest today, I'm very happy to say, is Jim Crane. Jim is an energy research fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute in Houston, Texas. He worked for many years as a journalist based in Iraq and Dubai, and is the author of several books, among them Energy Kingdoms, Oil and Political Survival in the Persian Gulf, published by Columbia University Press. He recently co-authored a paper for the Baker Institute that explores the vexed relations between the UAE and its fellow OPEC members. It's called Should Abu Dhabi Quit OPEC? And you can find it on the bakerinstitute.org website. It's a terrific read and the focus of our conversation today. Jim, great to have you back on the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me back, Bill. Now, you've just published a paper for the Baker Institute, which you co-wrote with Christian Coates Ulrichsen, another podcast steward, and Mark Finley, with the intriguing and provocative title, Should Abu Dhabi Quit OPEC? Reconsidering the UAE Membership. Now, you're going to answer that question for me as we walk uh, and talk through this uh, podcast. But first of all, Jim, can you give our listeners a snapshot of the UAE's history with OPEC? Oh, uh, yeah. So, I mean, you know, UAE has been in OPEC for quite a while. So the cartel was launched uh, way back in 1960 in Baghdad by Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Iran, Kuwait, and Venezuela. And that was, you know, well before the UAE was even, you know, in existence as a country, right? What's now the UAE was known as the Trucial States uh, at that time. Abu Dhabi joined, you know, before the UAE was even in existence, right? So they joined in 1967, really just in time to, uh, to get involved with the cartel uh, and take part in the 1973 embargo. And, you know, as, as we know, over the next decade or two, export countries got extremely wealthy, you know, from, uh, you know, well, the tripling of oil prices almost overnight during the embargo, plus the nationalization of oil concessions that was going on at the same time. So most of the countries in OPEC and, you know, even, you know, across the developing world, nationalized their oil sectors in the, uh, you know, the early to mid 70s. Uh, and so those, those two events brought huge increases in income, you know, so for the, for the Gulf countries uh, in general, something like 30 times uh, what they were getting prior to, uh, you know, those, those events. And in Saudi Arabia's case, 40 times, uh, you know, what they were getting uh, in the mid 60s. So um, really crazy increases in income. Now, the UAE only nationalized 60% of its oil sector. And it, it, it a little different than most of the others, you know, around the region. And it kept the, you know, wanted to keep those Western IOCs, those, those big international oil companies close as kind of a form of protection. I mean, you know, the UAE was kind of a weak state uh, back then. And then, you know, moving forward to the mid-80s, you know, the, the, the giant oil bust that proceeded, you know, after the two booms, the 1973-74 embargo boom, and then the other boom, uh, you know, in prices 
during the Iranian Revolution. There was a big bust after that, and there was OPEC tried to to hold the line and post quotas. There was lots of cheating, including by the UAE, uh, and they were sort of fudging this by saying that you know Abu Dhabi was the uh, uh, was the member, not the entire UAE, and Dubai, you know, which was a, a you know a minor oil producer, but had had some production. You know, Dubai didn't really count. And that kind of went away. You know, Dubai's oil production peaked in 1991, you know, around 400,000 barrels a day. And then that fell to almost a zero um, in the early 2000s. And then, you know, OPEC over that period you know, became a more responsible player in the 2000s, more concerned with price stability than in just simply maximizing prices. You know, and the UAE was part of that shift. You know, it turned out for the cartel, really, that this resource nationalism was counterproductive over the long run and, you know, it caused demand destruction in the oil markets. So that sentiment, though, that resource nationalist sentiment seems to be returning to OPEC now and is, you know, is partly to blame for what we're talking about with the UAE and potentially, you know, thinking about quitting OPEC. Mm, yeah, yeah. And of course, you mentioned Dubai. And I've got to mention one of my favorite books, the, the World's Fastest City, which you wrote, which was about Dubai shifting away from oil and making that really amazing transition into a, a financial hub, a tourism hub. And uh, and there it sits today. And meanwhile, Abu Dhabi, a, a big player in the oil game. But I want to go back to that paper. Now, um, you said that the UAE has, quote, the resource base and sophisticated production and diplomatic skills that have made it a central player. But now the Emiratis are feeling grieved. How instrumental in that feeling of grievance has been the arrival of Russia at the OPEC table in 2016, Jim? It's been a big part of that, um, I I think. You know, the expansion to OPEC Plus in 2016 I think it was a pretty momentous event, I mean, bringing in Russia and some other countries in, into the OPEC fold. All of that was really brought to, brought to you by uh, U.S. shale, right? This huge expansion in, in oil production in the United States basically pushed Saudi Arabia and Russia, these former adversaries, to start making common cause in the oil markets. And it also coincided with a, you know, a turn back towards resource nationalism, in OPEC, you know, so this long dormant force uh, seemed to reemerge, you know, and we, you know, you often hear this referred to as uh, the Saudi first policy, you know, within Saudi Arabia, but it's, you know, I think resource nationalism is a, is a better way to describe it. We're seeing more of a focus on maximizing prices and revenues for the member states, uh, greater willingness to cut and impose tough quotas, sort of an activist oil policy. You know, you, you hear, uh, you know, Prince Abdulaziz, the oil, oil minister in Saudi Arabia, talking about preempting when he sees a weakness in the markets. Uh, and Russia's a part of this. Russia's not necessarily a price hawk itself, you know, one of the countries that really wants higher prices. You know, traditionally, Russia's been willing to accept lower prices. You know, they've got the advantage of having a free-floating currency, you know, the ruble. It's not pegged to the dollar like many other OPEC countries. So they can accomplish the same thing as a price hike through monetary policy with it, you know, by devaluating their, their, the ruble. Uh, and their industry costs are in ruble. So, so they're, they're, they're pretty insulated, or they're more insulated anyway than, than some of the other countries uh, in OPEC. 
But since the invasion of Ukraine, right, so Russia really does need a higher price. So they're sort of, you know, um, in the same boat now. And OPEC plus at the same time, you know, we're seeing it taking a more anti-U.S. cast. You know, we're, we're this, this sort of, hey, let's punish the Biden administration with higher oil prices and let's stick it to them at election time. Uh, you know, that's new. The, uh, the U.S. used to have a greater influence within OPEC through Riyadh, right, through the Saudis, you know, despite all the complaining you, you, you often hear in the U.S., um, you know, actually, it was a much friendlier organization to U.S. interests until recently. You know, OPEC plus, plus a different sort of group. Also, there's there's more poor countries in the organization now, uh, and those countries are also more price hawkish. Uh, you know, you got new members or some that have come back, you know, countries like Equatorial Guinea, uh, Gabon, the Congo, tending to make common cause with countries like Algeria or Angola or Nigeria. You know, the UAE now is by far the wealthiest uh, and most diversified economy. It's just a much different country than you know, most of the rest of the membership. It can afford to invest upstream and push its diversification faster. And most of OPEC just does not have the cash to do that. So you know, the UAE just sees itself you know, in a different light now as a peer country to the OECD more than a peer of these petro states that are seeking price maximization. But Jim, you know, when Russia comes in, I mean, obviously the Saudis and the Emiratis had difficult relations at times, but basically they were the movers and shakers in OPEC. Russia arrives and is it kind of like the jilted lover a little bit that the Emiratis slightly get pushed aside as the Saudis and the Russians start to work together? Yeah, I, it does seem like the you know the Emirates have, have lost some of their their swagger, I think, within OPEC, right? So they they have been marginalized, and they've been complaining about it. They've been pretty vocal, uh, you know, through various press uh, leaks and rumors. You know, we've heard, you know, a, you know, a, a number of um, pretty reasonable complaints you know, about the size of their quotas and what they're sacrificing. So that you know, that's uh, yeah, that's that that's true. Now, you mentioned uh, the U.S. and its relations uh, with OPEC, but what about the U.S.-Emirati relations and this in this game of oil chess? How How is that faring? And, and where are the Emiratis? Because we know there are tensions between the Saudis and the Americans, particularly in the Biden administration. But wh- where are the Emiratis sitting in all of that? Well, UAE's come a long way in Washington, right? So, you know, the, it was once this underdeveloped quasi-dependency, uh, you know, of Washington. Now it's, you know, a major strategic partner. And I think, you know, in a, you know, Washington was once worried that the UAE was going to be swallowed up by one of the larger neighbors. Uh, now we've got, you know, major commercial ties. You know, this UAE's very, very savvy player, uh, you know, Washington, D.C. You know, it's more interested in partnering with, technology ventures in in the U.S. and the rest of the OECD and, in, you know, getting foreign direct investments, really then in picking their pockets through the oil price, right? So, you know, I think there's more of a wish within the UAE to stay on the good side of Washington, probably more than in what we're seeing in Saudi Arabia and, and in, uh, you know, among, you know, Russia, of course, and, you know, particularly among, with Mohammed bin Salman. There's definitely some frictions, of course, right? And yeah, I think this, you know the Saudis really angered Washington with that two million barrel a day cut via OPEC Plus uh, back in October at election time, 
Um, and I think, you know, the UAE was has been at pains to say that it was opposed to that cut, you know, and it really has been trying to distance itself from the Saudis. We've seen a stream of leaks that have blamed the Saudis and, you know, talked about UAE attempts to talk MBS down uh, from making those drastic cuts. Uh, so we argue in the paper that, you know, that for the UAE departing this increasingly anti-U.S. OPEC would help it uh, help the UAE emerge from this sort of Saudi first orbit, this, you know, this more confrontational road that this cartel is on with the, you know, Russia now in a, in a, in the, in a prominent role, allowing the UAE to chase its own interests, really, rather than partnering with these more resource nationalist countries uh, and these underdeveloped countries that are more concerned with, you know, basic revenue maximization. You're listening to the Arab Digest podcast with me, William Law, and the Baker Institute's Jim Crane. You might have noticed that our podcasts have no sponsors and no advertising. If you'd like to support a truly independent voice on the Middle East and North Africa, please consider making a small donation. Details at ArabDigest.org. Jim, uh, relations with Saudi Arabia... And the Emiratis, as the paper illustrates, they've ebbed and they've flowed. I'd say they're ebbing rather strongly right now. How annoyed are the Emiratis with the Saudis, particularly in light of recent OPEC meetings? Yeah, you know, like you say, they, you know, their their ties wax and wane. You know, where they were riding high, I think, when you know Mohammed bin Zayed saw himself as the mentor to the emerging Saudi Crown Prince, you know, Mohammed bin Salman. The two went to war in Yemen together. You know, then, you know, MBZ saw it wasn't working and kind of recalibrated and that caused some friction. And, you know, same for MBS. You know, he was pretty willing to forgive and forget with Qatar. And, you know, MBZ was was still uh, bearing a grudge. But I think the bad blood between MBS and Biden is is another source of strain. I, mean, I think the UAE is pretty uncomfortable going down that road. Uh, and I think the outcome of this June 4th OPEC meeting really reflected this, that the UAE has legitimate grievances and that um, they weren't being addressed through OPEC and that, you know, it had other options. Right. So, you know, the UAE had been complaining, you know, as I mentioned, over over the past few years about this really unfair burden that keeps getting more unfair, you know, as the, as the upstream investment continues uh, in the UAE. So, you know, all these 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 different Hints in the press and among diplomats, you know, the chatter that we hear that, uh, you know, that it was thinking about quitting or on the verge of quitting. You know, last week in the OPEC meeting on June 4th, uh, the UAE got a, uh, you know, it was the only country that really got um, emerged with, a, 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 you know, in, in better shape than it went in. Got an extra 200,000 barrels a day of oil production added to its baseline uh, production, which allows it basically to raise production from about 2.9 million barrels a day to, to, to close to 3.2 million barrels a day. So a little bit more than 200,000 barrels a day. But they would and like to be, sorry, Jim, but they would like to be pumping more, wouldn't they? They would. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, they, you know, they can go out there, you know, they, they'd like to go all the way up to four. Um, but, uh, you know, I think this is, you know, I think they're, they're mollified uh, by this, um, you know, we see this as a recognition of the UAE's option that it's been, you know, pretty uh, uh, vocal about, uh, you know, to quit OPEC. 
that's an option. And, you know, the increasingly strong rationale, I mean, it's just becoming plain that UAE could be making a lot more money and, you know, going its own way uh, with little trouble doesn't really need to be in OPEC anymore. Well, let, let's look at that, Jim, because you cite some some big pluses for the Emiratis were they to pull out. The biggest for me was this eye-watering amount of revenue that the UAE could cash in on somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 to 70 billion per annum. Walk our listeners through that scenario. Sure, yeah. So the national oil company, you know, ADNOC, right, the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company, they have been investing big time past few years upstream in, in more oil production and more gas production. You know, about $150 billion over five years. So just, you know, ridiculous amounts of money. You know, again, most of the OPEC countries just don't have this kind of wherewithal. And so this is, you know, a major campaign. They've been trumpeting this uh, publicly. They want to raise their production capacity from, you know, where it was a couple of years ago, 3 million barrels a day. They want to bring that all the way up to five by 2027. So they're they're about halfway there, right? So they're at they're at about four million barrels a day of capacity right now. But the you know the reference baseline for their quota within OPEC was until really recently it was based on that old three million barrel a day capacity, right? So this UAE's quota was being imposed on it from this unrealistically low base, right? And the base never got revised to include the expanded production capacity that ADNOC had been adding. So that meant, you know, UAE was sacrificing more than a quarter of its production, a lot more than anybody else, percentage terms, uh, anybody else within OPEC, right? So, you know, it it had been restricted to 2.9 million barrels a day. So, you know, about 1.1 million barrels a day of oil production capacity was sitting idle offline. Now, as I mentioned, you know, recently that baseline has been creeping up. And on June 4th, the recent meeting, it went to something like 3.7 million barrels a day. So now the baseline is catching up to reality. I think some of these grievances are starting to be addressed. So they can now produce, you know, about you know, 3.2, which is you know, a pretty significant concession when everybody else is being asked to sacrifice. So that figure that, that, that we mentioned in the paper, 50 to 70 billion dollars of more you know, additional revenue, that comes from looking at what might happen if ADNOC finished its, its, its investment campaign and then cranked the taps all the way up to 5 million barrels a day you know, from the previous 2.9. Right? So um, you know, at, a, you know, at a, you know, prevailing oil prices, that's what it works out to. Uh, so it's, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, that's a lot of cash they're leaving on the table by remaining in OPEC. But they, you know, they still need a couple more years to uh, to get to five million barrels a day. Yeah, a, a lot of cash, a lot of temptation there. W- what are some of the other wins? Uh, you know, is there a certain degree of flexibility, for example, getting out of this uh, cartel? Yeah, I mean, we we yeah, we definitely think there's more flexibility, right? So we think being outside OPEC would give the UAE a lot more freedom of action, not only in oil production and you know and exports, but other longer term benefits. But in the short term, right? So you know they don't need to adhere to quotas anymore. They could maximize their production. They could basically free ride on the rest of OPEC and the sacrifices that OPEC makes. You know, kind of like what U.S. shale does. Uh, you know, this is not a nice thing to do to your fellow petro states, but, uh, you know, it would be appreciated by some quarters, you know, U.S. motorists, one group that would, I'm sure, appreciate that and probably, you know, Washington. 
you know, any adherence to the internal combustion engine uh, and, and trying to keep that uh, technology alive versus electric vehicles, I'm sure, would appreciate it. You know, but more importantly, it would increase the amount of rents flowing to the state. But longer term, you know, the UAE wants to basically produce more now to invest in diversification of, it, of its economy uh, to protect itself from, you know, from climate action and, uh, uh, you know, the energy transition. So, you know, it's basically shifting its depletion horizon, you know, to, to fit a shorter time frame. You know, they, they've got this big net zero by 2050 plan. That's going to be expensive. You know, I'm sure they're going to flesh that out during the COP uh, this fall in Dubai. And you've got a very, very emissions intensive economy in the UAE now. So it's going to be, you know, really, uh, it's going to be a heavy lift. They also want to minimize their stranded resources. You know, oil's valuable now. Is it always going to be that way? Nobody knows. So, so yeah, so I think that gives them, you know, more freedom of diplomatic maneuver, freedom of maneuver around climate, the energy transition, you know, a greater ability to kind of push through some of these reforms, some improved ties with Washington, or at least some part of Washington, right? Because, you know, the, the cartel and Saudi Arabia and, you know, Russia in some ways, seem to be aiming to help the Republican Party in, uh, you know, at election time. So, and it would also, you know, if that this sort of periodic threat of the NOPEC legislation that uh, once gets trotted out every, every now and then uh, in Washington, but never seems to come to fruition. Tell our listeners what that NOPEC is. Yeah, so that basically, you know, cartel members could, if the legislation were passed, would allow the U.S. government to seize assets in the U.S. Uh, that are owned by these companies, uh, you know, in the name of uh, antitrust violations, you know, violations of U.S. antitrust law based on collusion among, uh, you know, OPEC members to increase U.S. gasoline prices. You know, so leaving OPEC would end that possibility. It would basically, you know, they'd never be exposed to OPEC, to, you know, antitrust uh, uh, legislation in the U.S. Um, You've taken us through the upsides for leaving. What's the downside? Well, so OPEC is, you know, I mean, it's 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 a pretty strong organization. It's, you know, a, a, kind of an interesting phenomenon. You know, it's been really durable over the years. It's been able to survive all sorts of upheaval, including members at war with each other, right? And they, they still see value in, in remaining in the cartel th- through it all. <laughs> so it's, um, you know, and, it, and OPEC does provide valuable services to the global economy in terms of oil price stability, right? So, you know, it's been this useful forum for member states. You know, they can interact with Saudi Arabia. Uh, you know, they can get the world's attention that way, you know, by having a voice with, uh, with Saudi Arabia in this sort of critical uh, area of uh, energy commodity export policy, you know, been a powerful organization. I mean, it's, it, you know, it's, you know, being in partial control over global oil and being a member of that group, you know, it gives you, I think your diplomats a bit of spring in their step. You're seen as kind of a national leader uh, in this area that, you know, it's a, you know, critical national interest of every country on earth. Uh, so, um, you know, the UAE is not going to increase, you know, they've been complaining about their lack of of influence within OPEC, it's not going to increase if they leave the cartel, right? So they're, it's, you know, they're, they're going to lose whatever, if they're losing, in, uh, you know, uh, influence within OPEC now, they're going to, they're going to lose it all if they leave. You know, and they could be punished for it. You know, we could see a price war. I mean, that's usually the, the typical 
discipline tactic within OPEC. But, you know, that probably wouldn't be so effective for the UAE, you know, wealthy, diversified economy. They could survive a price war better than anybody. They're already a low price. Their, their oil comes out of the ground fairly inexpensively. Uh, but they could see other types of retaliation, like we saw with Qatar with the blockade, you know, maybe, you know, some closed borders or some trade issues or, you know, lack of, uh, you know, airspace uh, for, for their airlines, you know, a big part of the economy, maybe visa requirements, uh, you know, for travel in neighboring states. I think the big thing would be to, you know, could really damage relations with Saudi Arabia, you know, really important regional partner. You've got MBS, who's likely to be in power for decades, uh, and this could really damage uh, relations with with them. You know, and the UAE is such a big player in OPEC, you know, such an important member that I think the organization itself would be damaged. So there would likely be some consequences. Okay, Jim, finally, the big question. And I'm going to draw one of my favorite bands, The Clash, <laughs> the Emiratis. Do they go or do they stay? And, and do you remember the the next line? I do. If I stay, there will be trouble. If I go, it will be double. So? Yeah, so The Clash, I mean, they've got a lot of social commentary in their songs. So, you know, we could probably pick a different song and it might point in another direction, right? <laughs> yeah. um, but, uh, you know, you could, you could probably run your whole life by, uh, uh, you know, by looking at Clash songs. Uh, Amen. Yeah, yeah. Based on their lyrics, but but in this case, right, I think we see the threat of leaving as you know, at a minimum, a bargaining chip to a better quota, uh, and that seems to have worked already, right? It's or it's working. You know, they've gotten a, a pretty pretty decent sized concession just just recently, just after our paper came out, in fact. But you know, the UAE. You know, they've got a lot more investment upstream. They've got big ambitions. They've got this big diversification and, you know, net zero goal they are trying to push through, you know, to, in order to bring all of that new oil online and, and, and reach those goals. I think, you know, OPEC is it's constraining it. It's kind of holding it back. And I think it may have to leave OPEC to get to where it's going. If it leaves, it could come back in. Is that uh, a route? It's true. Yes. You know, so you've had several countries have have left and returned. Uh, you know, we've even seen, you know, Indonesia has left, returned and left again. You can come and go. But we I don't think we've seen any big players. You know, most of the countries that have left and come back are either small producers or, you know, Indonesia left when it became a net importer. Right. So. Um, so none of the uh, sort of the key players have really left. I mean, Qatar is the is the big one. Um, it's the only Gulf country that's left. But you know, Qatar's just a tiny oil producer, um, and it's not. You know, it's its power is from from gas. Uh, that's where it, it really makes the rents. I think UAE is different, and it, you know, I think it would be a um, a different situation for for the cartel. Mm. Yeah, Qatar, of course, left during that that blockade, which the Emiratis were the prime leaders of. Uh, the Saudis chipped in, as did the Egyptians and and the Bahrainis. But fascinating story, Jim, and um, really enjoyed your article. We'll have to sit down and 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 compare and contrast the clash someday. <laughs> right? Yeah, for sure. Thanks a lot for uh, for taking the time to speak to us today. Well, thanks again for having me, Bill. You've been listening to the Herb Digest podcast. My guest today was the Baker Institute's Jim Crane. 
You can find Jim's paper that he co-authored with Christian Coates Ulrichsen and Mark Finley on the bakerinstitute.org website. For anyone interested in the intersections between oil and politics, it's well worth a read. I hope you're enjoying the podcasts, which we bring you with no advertising and no sponsors. We are a truly independent source for analysis and commentary on the Middle East and North Africa. You can support our independent voice through a small donation. Details on how to do so at ArabDigest.org. When you go to our website, you can also find out about our reader-supported daily newsletter and how to get a free two-month trial. The newsletter features the very best of MENA analysts and commentators, contributors like Jim. Check us out on ArabDigest.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading, essential listening from independent sources.